Turn with me as we continue this series called to be saints. Let's go over to gospel according to Matthew in chapter 21. I'm going to read just a few verses in a message that I have titled Palm Sunday and the Great Divorce. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer. Ye have made it a den of thieves. Verse 14 is a very intriguing verse. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Palm Sunday and the great divorce. Notice here this little phrase we find throughout the New Testament. It is written. Whenever you see that, it is always a reference to what is in the Old Testament. And so I want to make mention again, as I did last week, of a troubling statement when you hear a preacher say we have to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Whatever his intent was, it's just not the type of statement a preacher should make. It is written. That's what Jesus said. It's odd that Satan also says the same thing. If you go back in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, you'll see that Satan comes to Jesus at last, the last temptation, the three temptations. And he says, it is written. After Jesus had just said twice, it is written, it is written. And finally, Satan got wise and he says, it is written. We are heavily dependent on these scriptures. It is written. So when Jesus comes, he tells them. This is how the temple was designed by the Father, God, the Son, Jesus, Holy Spirit. My house shall be called the house of prayer. And we read in Isaiah, for all nations, meaning that it was God's intent from the beginning, after committing his oracles to Israel, was always his intention to bring him to the whole world, every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue. It is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer. And then he tells them, but you, all of you here, you have made it a den of thieves. We read in Ecclesiastes 3, it is written, there is nothing new under the sun. God gave the law specifically to Moses, who in turn gave it to the children of Israel, the moral law. And it wasn't very long after the giving of the law that it wasn't being upheld. The Bible calls it sin. We see today, but actually we see it throughout history, that the intent of God, now to make the church, we know it's not a building, it's you and me, to be a people of prayer. So we could translate it this way. My people, whom I've called by my name, right? We say Christian, will be the people of prayer, implying not only a relationship, our Father, but that we receive answers to our prayer. We read this, well, throughout the Bible, but we read this in 1 John and we receive the things that we ask of him. I mean, there's so many great and precious promises in the Bible. But we can only count on the answer coming from God when we are playing by the rules. We're doing what God has said to do. Now, clearly they weren't. And once again, we can look at the religious leaders who were chiefly responsible for allowing this to happen in the house of God. This place, the, the temple. 
They were the ones who not only were permitting it, but some of them were benefiting from the extortion. Men saw opportunity to make money. On top of the fact that it's noted that they were selling inferior animals for sacrifice, which God said never to do. First of the flock, best of the flock. We went through this Wednesday night. And so you have an inferior sacrifice being sold at exorbitant prices and, in effect, extorting the people who did come to worship, to obey God, making a profit. And then we can picture also the haggling that's going on in the church. I made note of this some time ago, how people in ministry will now refer, and I'm thinking primarily of music, but it's not exclusively music, will refer to their CDs or whatever they're selling as product. For me, well, first of all, I don't have any product to sell, but I don't particularly care for that term when we're talking about things that belong to God, music and books and so on, because it conjures up, in my mind at least, the image that we see here, the gain that is made from, in our case, Christian people by unscrupulous individuals. I've always had an issue. Well, you can see in the song service today, our need for the Holy Spirit. You're singing one line, I'm singing another, and I can't figure out why you're wrong. <laughs> and uh, when anything goes wrong here in music, we always blame Frank. He's the easiest. And I'm trying to figure out why you're not singing what I'm singing, and then we have the proverb. We're not on the same sheet of music. It really was unfortunate, because it's a great hymn. Crown him with many crowns. Well, we made the best that we could with the help of the Holy Spirit, then moved on to Amazing Grace, which was better. We need to be lined up with what is written. It is written, my house, my people, will be called the people of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And again, if we're not looking at history past, both biblical and otherwise, we would be tempted to think that what we're going through right now in the church world is unique, but it's not. Men have always taken advantage of the people of God, and we'll read a little bit of this today, false teachers, false prophets that make merchandise. You become the merchandise. We'll read this a little later. You're the merchandise. They're looking to make money, and there is an assumption that people in ministry are not out for the money. They're out for the glory of God. They say so. But in the days of Jesus and in today's church as well, that's not always the case. People are making merchandise of you, and that's what they were doing here. Obviously, Jesus is not happy. And it comes to my mind that Americans, in particular, have a difficult time coming to grips with this part of God's nature, his anger and his wrath. 20 years ago, Keith Getty and his friend Townsend wrote this beautiful hymn that we sing here and many sing around the world, In Christ Alone, one of the five solas of the Reformation, Sola Christus, In Christ Alone. And some publisher was putting together a modern hymnal. Keith Getty, his wife, and some others they work with have become modern hymn writers, something we don't see much anymore. Everything's a short little song, and they're good. Some are good. But the hymns, it's hard to beat them for theology. You know, they're longer, of course, but you're learning something. They wrote this beautiful song that we sing in Christ alone. In there, there are words about the cross that talk about the fact that God's wrath was satisfied. But the publishers did not want that line in there. So they were suggesting that that 
line in their hymn be changed to, and his love was magnified. I want to remind you that if it's not for the cross of Christ, even that makes no sense. Why try to share love with the world by dying on a Roman cross as a criminal? At most, it's some type of romantic notion, which in my mind doesn't do much for me. But because of the hymn in Christ alone and many others like it, that talks about the anger of God and his judgment. The hymns bring to us, and certainly based on the scriptures, the scriptures bring to us what is good news. That Christ came to seek and to save those who are lost. Further, there is a notable absence of the preaching of the judgment of God, the doctrine of hell, from the pulpits today, at least in America. I want to just read to you a brief article written by a young man who serves in a ministry for pastoral resources. He wrote this just a few years ago, Five Reasons Preachers Avoid Sermons on Hell. Kevin Halloran writes these words, Some who seek to be faithful to Scripture unconsciously avoid preaching hell because of an underlying framework. Others consciously avoid it because they perceive their listeners don't want to hear about it. Here are five reasons, he writes, why preachers, whether consciously or not, may avoid preaching judgment. Number one, he says, they have subtly bought into a version of the prosperity gospel. Even pastors who formerly reject the prosperity gospel can be tempted to functionally believe it in their hearts and proclaim it from the pulpit. Our materialistic culture only compounds this danger. Instead of proclaiming eternal judgment, preachers blunt the sharp edge of God's wrath out of a desire to highlight what one can get out of Christianity. Two, they have idolized God's love to the neglect or denial of his other attributes. He writes, while scripture is clear that, quote, God is love, we see this all over the Bible, particularly the New Testament, he quotes 1 John 4, 16. He goes on to say, it's equally clear that he is holy, righteous, jealous, and just, the judge of the universe, to whom all will give account. Our feel-good culture of positive thinking may not like to talk about negative things like death or hell, but God's word has much to say about it. Number three, they have tragically, remind yourself he's speaking of preachers, they have tragically diminished the view of God's holiness. He writes again, the holiness of God is one of the most neglected doctrines in evangelicalism today. Both the prophet Isaiah and the apostle John received glimpses into the heavenly throne room and heard the content of heavenly worship, holy, holy, holy. Only when we see God in light of his blinding holiness can we understand how flawed rebels like us deserve his righteous wrath. When we lose a sense of God's holiness, his judgment begins to seem arbitrary. Fourth, he says, preachers have a pragmatic approach to ministry. Many churches today run like businesses, basing their definition of success on metrics. Instead of prioritizing faithfulness to scripture and making disciples, they focus on weekly attendance, bigger and better programs, and the amount of money in the plate. When the goal is padding numbers for a human definition of success, it's not surprising some of the more unsavory doctrines, like hell, get left by the wayside. 
And then lastly, he proposes that preachers fear man more than they fear God. And again, he writes, once we begin fearing our neighbor more than our maker, a desire to please people who shape the content of our sermons. As preachers, we must pursue the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9, verse 10. And let him define ministry's success. In ministry, as well as in all areas of life, these words ring true. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. He goes on to quote from J.I. Packer, who is a notable Reformed theologian. In his work, The Puritan Vision of the Christian Life, Packer wrote these words. We cannot present Christ as a savior from sin and the wrath of God. And if we are silent about these things and preach a Christ who saves only from self and the sorrows of this world, we are not preaching the Christ of the Bible. We are, in effect, hearing false witness and preaching a false Christ. Our message is another gospel. A false Christ cannot save from God's justice. Preaching a false Christ will lead, among other things, to false assurance. Indeed, proclaiming the good news while neglecting the bad undercuts the glory of the good. I agree with this. I agree with the thoughts of Kevin Halloran that we preachers have found ourselves somewhere on one or more of these points. When it's the preacher's job, as we just read from Jesus' words, to simply say, it is written. It is written. And think of it this way. If that statement was good enough for Jesus, that statement was good enough for the apostles, quoting from the prophets and the patriarchs of the Old Testament, whom God used and gave his words, then it should be good enough for us. The preacher should, with an intrepid spirit, be able to tell all that are listening or watching, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. When you look at these prophets, I'm thinking at the moment of John the Baptist, they don't have that wishy-washy, somewhat nebulous theology that we are confronted with today. I should say that we are having to endure today. In preparation for this message, I was reading theology, and, you know, my eyes began to get tired. My mind was starting to get confused. Because, you know, in this age of technology, there's so much available to us. And the more I read, the less satisfied I was. Closed up the computer. I just sat there and just began to pray and to meditate, and the peace returned. And it wasn't the Lord's voice as much as the intuitive sense of God saying to me, just preach my word and keep it simple. And so I'm here before you today to say it is written. Jesus came into the temple after a triumphal, we call it triumphal, entry into Jerusalem as the crowds, not everyone, but so many of them are crying out to him, Hosanna, save now. That's what it means. But God had something else in mind, namely you and me. If Jesus had built the kingdom at that point in time, I presume we wouldn't have been born. We would not be here today. I mean, saved and singing and all of that. God had something else in mind, but these people here didn't quite understand the plan of God. So they were saying, save us now, save us now. And in my mind, again, it is similar to some of these doctrines that we hear. Today will be your best day ever. 
God wants you, you know, wealthy and, and so on. And I have to admit and confess and testify that God has been very, very good to me. I've gotten so many things I never asked for just by the goodness of God. I will start with my home. Well, it's not one if you put it on Google Maps and look at it. It's not a compound. I don't have any bodyguards other than the angels. Some money saved up, but it's not gobs and gobs. Yet, I know that my life is blessed. Because I've spent my entire adult life reading a book that Jesus said was written. The apostles stated, the prophets stated, was written by God himself. The Lord spake unto me and said, Son of man. And he wrote the words that God gave him. Moses, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, David, and so on, wrote what God had given to them and put it in the book. And now the preacher must come up and say, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer. My people will be called the house of prayer, the people of prayer. Don't make it a den of thieves. Don't extort the brethren. Let me say it to you this way. Some years ago, in a letter that I received, it was a generic letter sent to all the churches. I learned from reading the letter that one of the music companies who wrote the letter was informing pastors like me that if I had music up on the overheads, back in those days it was the acetate overheads, that I could be sued by Christian artists and Christian writers for using their music without paying them. Then they went on to cite cases, lawsuits adjudicated in some court of law, before, as we would read in the scriptures, before unbelievers. Christian composer, Christian singers suing the brethren for using their songs. And I'm being told that as the pastor, if I put on an acetate, and now of course we have monitors and this technology, without paying the piper, we could be sued. Now, me being me, I called up the company and I said, I just got this here, I don't understand this. See, I've always been kind of simple about things. I read the Bible and it says what it says. I believe it means what it says. And I'm asking one of the representatives there, how in the world can you sue me? And she goes on to explain. Of course, she was just a kid working there. But, and I said, let me ask you a question. The Christian writer says God gave him this song. Yeah? Yeah. And if God gave him the song, you're saying that the Christian church, churches can't sing it? Yeah. Now, she had a comeback, and her comeback was, well, you're a pastor, you get paid. I said, yeah, but my name's listed in the scriptures. And the ordinance that goes with that, as you know, I'm a singer and musician. I haven't written much lately, but I'm seriously contemplating writing my own scores. So I can do what Keith Green did at one point, make an album and say, here, duplicate it. David Wilkerson, the preacher, used to do the same thing. Duplicate it. Hand it out. Now, listen, here's my logic. I have heard preachers, which in my mind is a compliment, I have heard preachers using my messages. And I think I've told you this story. We had a local revival here years ago with churches. I missed the first night, came the second night, and the pastor that was leading these services was saying how great the service was the night before. And it was evidently a woman preacher, and he had all the notes written down. It was a message about Satan. He's going through the points. I'm saying, boy, I just said that last Sunday. And then the second point, I said, hey, I said the same thing. Every single point was my sermon. Now, I suppose if I follow through with the logic that we are being hit with today, it's not really logic, but I should have sued her for all the people who borrow. And by the way, all preachers borrow. They steal. I always try to give references where I got the information, who wrote it, because I think that's proper. But by rights, if I hear somebody using something that I know was an idea of my own, I should be calling them up and saying, hey, 
As my dad used to say, cash on the barrelhead. You owe me. But if they're smart and spiritual, they say, did God give it to you? I say, yeah. How much did God charge you? Well, it's all by grace, you know that. How does this work? Well, that's, in my mind, what Jesus was dealing with here. God said, bring sacrifices. Well, you're coming from a long distance, so you can't bring your own. But there's a system in place now where you can buy the animals you need, even if it's a pigeon, obviously a lamb, and you can buy it at the temple. So you make this long trek in, and now there's a haggling process going on. I'm selling this. Well, let's stay with the pigeon. I'm selling this pigeon for such and such a price. And now I can't do it that low and back and forth. Now, here comes Jesus. And he's seen this before. Because if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see that the cleansing of the temple takes place near the end of his ministry, which in just a few days, he'll be crucified. But in the gospel, according to John, it starts at the beginning of his ministry. He cleanses the temple. What conclusion do we make? That he did it more than once. That he came into his own temple and cleanse it in this fashion on more than one occasion. For example, in John's account, the start of Jesus' ministry, he comes in with a whip, and he's kicking tables over. And you hear the jingling of the coins and the cry of these frightened animals and birds flying around. And the leaders are not happy with him, partly because they're getting a kickback, partly because they're in charge. And God says, you're not in charge. I'm in charge. And my house, my house, will be called the house of prayer for all nations, you have made it a den of thieves. So Jesus is coming in. He's seeing this again. And once again, he does the same thing. The leadership will confront him the next day again. Who are you? Show us a sign. There is nothing new under the sun. And there's coming, which is the title of this message, Palm Sunday and the Great Divorce. What we actually see here is a separation going on within God's house. Jesus teaches us that there will be a separation when he returns. The tares and the wheat. But before I go there, let me talk about the great division or the great divide, or the word that I borrowed from C.S. Lewis, his work, The Great Divorce. When C.S. Lewis wrote this novel, which is a type of allegory pretty much similar to John Bunyan's work, The Pilgrim's Progress, he writes a story, The Great Divorce, that's the name of the short novel, of people who are in hell and people who are in heaven. And in his creative mind and creative writing, hell is pictured as a gray town, much like we have this day here. Everything is gray, and there it's always raining every day, all the time, even indoors. But the inhabitants of gray town, of the gray town, don't know they're in hell. And their life there is pretty much identical to how it was on earth without joy, without faith, and in that case there, without hope, without anything cheerful. Everyone is self-centered, and you go on and you go on. So in the story, there's a trip that's being sponsored by whoever, and you can get on a bus, and you're going to take a trip to this other land that later they learn is heaven, and the driver is Jesus himself. But just at the bus stop alone, and the inhabitants of the great town, which is hell, are in such debate with themselves at the bus stop and many of them just give up and don't even get on the bus. They just turn it down and go back to Greytown. Now, when the bus driven by Jesus takes them up to heaven, one of the first things that the people of Greytown notice is that it's very painful to walk in heaven. Every step is laborious and, again, painful. They don't like it. But to cut to the chase, 
There's an invitation given to the people in Greytown, which doesn't exist in the Bible, but again, this is a creative analogy, a creative novel coming from the mind of C.S. Lewis. They're given an opportunity to come to heaven, where they are told that everything they ever experienced, not only in Greytown, which is hell, but on earth, will slowly be reversed, so that even the most sorrowful memory of life on earth will slowly just diminish, dissipate, and disappear. And, of course, heaven is always well lit. But so many of them make excuses as to why they won't live. One man says, this is all a myth, it's a bluff. Another woman, I got a kick out of this one, is a woman who constantly nagged her husband and prefers that to Christ's heaven. And then you have all these other individuals who make an excuse why they don't want to be there. And only one, he was a womanizer, an adulterer, who takes up the offer. Again, it's imaginative and not completely lined up with the scriptures, but the thought is there. And by the way, the inhabitants of Greytown are gloomy individuals, as you can imagine. The one thing they fear is that they know night is coming. Now they can see. But somehow they have a knowledge that night is coming and it will never change. I want to repeat myself that this cross here makes no sense whatsoever unless preachers open the book and say, It is written. That there is such a place. And we talk about why would God create that. There's some very good answers, reasonable answers as to why. That won't be the theme for today or not even a rabbit trail. But it's there. And I've told you, among the other intelligent reasons, that we can conclude that there is an afterlife with a heaven and a hell. For me and this preacher here, I believe in it because Jesus said so. And my ambition is to be faithful to God. My ambition is to be faithful to the scriptures. My ambition is to fear God more than I fear man. My ambition is to have preaching and prayer and whatever. To please God and God alone and whoever else is pleased or happy is a bonus for me. And if I don't receive anything, at least I know when my head hits the pillow at night that my conscience is cleared. But let me go back to this. We come here and like the Pilgrim's Progress and certainly like the scriptures... We meet an obstacle on our way to hell, and many of us didn't know we were going there. And we didn't know we were going there because no one told us. I told you how I received Christ. I received it in the gospel track, and the whole track was about hell, about a great white throne judgment. But the funny thing is, it didn't offend me. I entertained it. Could this be true? I never read the Bible before. Read that track, This Is Your Life, signed on the back there. Want to know Christ? I said, yes, I do. Now, we were taught, many of us were taught, most all of us were taught that there is a hell. But anyway, we come here, and we don't really know what we're doing because we're lost, and we're in the dark, and we meet with the cross of Christ. And the cross speaks to us of Christ paying the penalty of eternity in hell or the judgment of God. And so it's good news. You know, the odd, ironic relationship of the gospel to human nature is that the pep talks that people are getting in churches today, the uh, sermonizing and the pulpiteering and all of this never brings a lasting joy because you always need another motivational speech. But when the power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life, and as I explained to you on Wednesday, when the grace of God, which is a dynamic quality, reflects out of your life, you talk about things that come from the Bible, whether pleasant or unpleasant, but still there's an abiding joy. And that's the good news. That's the good news. We have been saved, saved, saved. 
And when the Holy Spirit makes that real, as he did to me, I know he has to you, but as he did to me many long years ago, there has been ever since an abiding confidence that I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Sir Robert Anderson, whom I won't mention today, I don't think of the specifics of how Christ fulfilled prophecy exactly on this day, Palm Sunday, coming into the city, the 70 weeks of Daniel, the end of the 69th week that Jesus came in that Sunday on the exact day predicted in the book of Daniel. But the man who came up with this and many others now who've advanced on it, Sir Robert Anderson was studying law. He had a lot of questions and problems and he went to hear a preacher preaching. Now I will make the assumption that Sir Robert Anderson, who was the second commissioner or assistant commissioner of Scotland Yard, so he's a bright individual, I'll make an assumption, a presumption, that he was smarter than the preacher, educationally. And so he wanted to go up after the meeting and debate with the preacher on hell and God and all this. The preacher only said one thing to him. He said, you have the opportunity today to receive Christ. Will you do it? And like that, Sir Robert Anderson, yes, said yes, yes. There's something about the word of God. As Spurgeon put it, it's like a lion when you just let it out of its cage. And the Holy Spirit anoints it. It does its work. It is written. And when we are there, we're doing the work of God. When you have this, no matter what you're facing, and I just mentioned to you, so you go to the doctors. I have the report, the written report of the doctor's findings in my case, which again, they're not bad, but I was born with certain anomalies of the heart, which, well, God will give me grace and strength. And that's the whole point. This is like... I could read that and start worrying and biting my nails. How will I die? When will I need, you know, all this? But that day is going to come. Somewhere, at some time, I'm going to be in a position. You're going to be in a position. You're taking your last breath. And what will you call out for then? More money? When you already know that money cannot save you? What will you call out for? Even the closest person to you And I've been in this position, maybe some of you have as well, where there's an intuitive sense that no one can help you. And I was there as a young person. I knew intuitively I was in a place that no one can spare me from. Then I entertained the notion that if there was a God, he alone could save me without without even knowing what the scriptures said. And guess what? There is a God, and he did save me. And when we just stick with what it says, it is written, it is written that there is a hell, that there is a judgment to come upon every single individual in every single nation. But Christ stands in the way and he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come unto me, he says, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Come and learn. Let me go back to my illustration of the sun and the moon I gave you Wednesday night. We all know the moon has no light, just a giant rock. But when the sun shines on it, when there's no clouds in the sky at night, the reflection of the sun off the moon lights up all that's around us. And we've all had the experience of being someplace in the dark, but the moon is so bright, you can see your own shadow. When a Christian truly has the grace of God, no, it's not an easy road, but Jesus told us about that. We are reflecting the grace of God. And again, we can say with all assurance and certainty, I can do all things 
through Christ who strengthens me. A little off the track here, but I want to bring this to you. It's called the sacrifice of a smile. Now, honestly, can you say in all honesty that every moment of every day you feel, emotionally feel like smiling? You would be abnormal. There would be something wrong with you. But by an act of the will, you could turn those lips up. And assuming your teeth are in good shape, you could actually show. It's called the sacrifice of a smile. If you don't have to look at your face much but beyond makeup and shaving of whatever you do, why make us suffer? Try the sacrifice of a smile, and try this as well. How's it going? I like to do this because I'm so honest. I like to say, hey, God is good. God is good. Because I'm hit almost every single day with some surprise, something blindsides me. And it takes me a little bit to recover. But then I say to myself, I will not. I will not give in to this spirit. I will not have this thing occupy my mind. I'm not going to, you know, and you go along these lines. And you resist it. The sacrifice of a smile. Now, we take pride in saying, well, I'm just, you know, okay, well, fine. How about just do it for our sake? Just once in a while, just put a smile on, even when you don't feel like it, but more so for the glory of God. I never like to be a phony. I still don't. But I did learn some things as I get older, that there is some propriety in doing certain things for other people, like a smile. Christ in you the hope of glory. I maintain that nothing can make an individual happier than knowing and acknowledging that there is a hell and knowing and acknowledging that God has saved you from it. Then knowing that you will be with God for eternity, knowing that you have the Spirit of Christ now. And I've said this because those of you watching by way of our live stream may not know this. This ring here is a diamond ring, very small diamonds. It's handmade. My father gave it to me. This watch looks really sharp, but it's cheap. That's my wedding ring. As far as jewelry is concerned, I've just shown you everything. That's it. I don't feel, I don't know, I don't feel good because I have rings on my finger and bells on my toes. It's something inside you that no matter how you decorate the flesh, you're being animated from the inside by the Spirit of God with the knowledge that He's saved you. That He saved you. That His blood has been shed as paying the price that you would have, and some will be paying. And paid it last night and throughout today. For they did not want to get on the bus, but Jesus as the driver, and had their reasons for staying in Greytown, which one day will become an eternal night. And Jesus said so. My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Be encouraged. There is nothing new under the sun. Keep walking on the straight path. Don't let others confuse you or concern you. Come with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. Let me just share with you the coming great divorce. We know the church and the world, not the same. But inside the church, professors and possessors... People who say and people who do. But in 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning there at the first verse, the coming divorce will take these people out by the hand of God. But there were false prophets also among the people, Old Testament, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily, privately shall bring in damnable heresies, 
even denying the Lord that bought them, bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways. Now look at here, verse 2. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Because the average individual, it's interesting, and I know that some of you have had this happen to you, when you make a faux pas or a big, big blunder in the workplace, let's say, someone says to you, and I thought you were a Christian. And I always wondered to myself, how did they know the difference? But they know. They know what Christ is like. I would consider, with that in mind, the sacrifice of a smile. Now look at verse 3. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words, that means they're just making it up, make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. And he delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. We go down to verse 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. That's the great divorce that's coming. When Jesus gives the parable of wheat and tares in the parable, those who put down good seeds says, how do these weeds come in here? The owner of the land says, an enemy has sown them. The workers say, well, let's take up the weeds. But the wise husbandman says, no, let them grow together because if you take up the weed right now, you'll take up the wheat with it. Let them grow until, my words, the great divorce, when the angels will harvest and separate wheat from chaff. Separate a possessor from those who are pretenders. That is what this world is coming to. A series we just passed through. That's what this world is coming to. We right now are being tried. We right now are being tested. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we see the church is evil spoken of because there's evil people in it. Continuing on in the wrongdoing. The average person understands that. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14 if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Someone said this to me just a few months ago. With respect to a book they know I've spent my life on. They thought it to be vogue, I guess, to say, well, you know, it's sacred to some and not to others. I've known this man for over 50 years. And what you're saying is that you don't care and have any respect for me. So be it. I did not retaliate. But if you're reproaching me or you're reproaching this book that I quote so frequently, you're not reproaching me, but the one who wrote it. And that's on you, not on me. And Jesus, well, here, Peter, but Jesus tells us too. He says, if you're reproached, well, he says in Matthew chapter 5, at verse 11, Blessed are ye when men revile you, persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. He said, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for so spake they also of the prophets that were before you. In other words, it is truly a badge of honor. If someone says, as I had just heard, well, it's sacred to some, he knows it's sacred to me, and not to others in this pseudo-intellectual posing, so be it. But it's sacred to me. 
And it is a good thing, is what Jesus is saying, and the Apostle Peter is repeating it, that if you're reproached because you're a Christian, now you know you got the real deal. Now you know you're in the house of prayer. But when people come to us and they point out a real fault, what I've always tried to do is simply acknowledge it. Not make an excuse for it and say, well, you know, you're right, is what I've told them. I've had to do it at work, not here at work, but when I was still in the workforce, clearly I was wrong. It was right before the sight of God to go in, make an appointment with my boss, or just can I speak to you for a moment? I had to do it on more than one occasion. Now that truly belongs to Irish genes. It wasn't my fault, it's the Irish. Yeah, that's what I could say. Well, you know, I'm Irish. I didn't. I said, I was wrong. And one occasion I said to him, now you know I'm born again. And I'm telling you that my behavior did not reflect Jesus Christ. That man came to Christ. He was my boss. Another co-worker came to Christ because they said, wow, this must be the real thing. Because he actually admits when he's wrong. Can you do the same thing? Some can't even do it in front of other Christians. When you're wrong, you're wrong. You just admit you're wrong. Instead of having Jesus come in to clean house. So that we are actually not a pretender, but a contender. We have the real thing. For judgment must begin at the house of God. Let me read it to you as I finish. Verse 17, 1 Peter chapter 4. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And that's what we see on Palm Sunday. In addition to the hosannas, when Christ comes to the temple again, he turns over the tables of the money changers and so on. Because the time had come for judgment to begin with the people who say, I know God. And I submit this to you one last time. Because of our comfort in America, intellectual comfort, spiritual comfort, and our creature comforts. So many are turning their ears away from the truth, saying, I will not hear this. This is not why I came here. But the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God. 1 Peter 4, 17. And I want to leave you with that. That's the question for today. Palm Sunday. We have palms here. If you haven't taken one, please do. I still like to make, well, I don't make it. My wife does. I think some of my kids do. You know, you make little crosses out of them and put them on the mirror. I, I don't, if I thought there was something wrong with it, we wouldn't be handing them out. Little reminders, a little tradition. But if that's all that you have. Get down on your knees and say, Christ, come into my life, because all I've got is a lifetime of tradition, a lifetime of ceremonies, a lifetime of going through motions. God, save me, for the judgment has already begun. But what more when Christ returns, or we go to meet him, shall the salvation also come? It will. The great divorce is on its way. Let's be found right in the sight of God. Try the sacrifice of a smile and then other things for the sake of others. Let's go before the Lord today. Lord, we sang earlier about, and of your kingdom there shall be no end. We long for that day. We long for that day of the eternal paradise that men today are trying to fabricate through their own doings. And I don't fault them all the time for trying to bring about goodness to the earth. But your word is clear it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, said the Lord. And that day is guaranteed to us who trust in you. You will bring that paradise back. Paradise will be restored. But today, God, on this Palm Sunday, 
Let the hearts of all that are here and watching by way of the live streaming television, listening by way of radio, let their heart cry out, Hosanna. Hosanna, save me today. Save me now. Oh God, we pray for another great awakening in America, that you would fall by your spirit, God, in this hour of great need, of this hour when night is approaching. Shine, Jesus, shine. Help us today, oh God. To be a shining lights in the darkness, lighting the way for somebody else. When there was a time when we needed someone to light our path. God, we bless you and we praise you today. For only you know the hearts of men, hearts of women. Our prayer, my prayer, is that today would be the day that a heart to cry out, Hosanna, save me today, save me now. With your head bowed, eyes closed. We know when we truly belong to Christ and intuitively we know when we don't. Let your heart cry out today, Hosanna. Do as Sir Robert Anderson was confronted with, and so many, many others. The preacher puts aside all of this frivolous intellectualism and say, today is the day that you have the opportunity to receive Christ. Will you receive him? If you haven't, do it. You will never regret it. So once again, Father, as a Sunday comes to, well, an end here when we're together, that much closer to our destiny. How fast it goes. Pour out your spirit, God. That's our prayer. Pour out your spirit. God is good all the time. With all of our troubles and all of our sorrows and all the things that we've been through and that we see, we're still learning to say God is good all the time. It's God. So God, we bless you and we praise you today. I ask you, God, to touch all of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I ask you today, Father God, to help them to wear the sacrifice of a smile and to let your grace shine off of them into the world. Let them be strong, intrepid. Help us, God, to completely trust you. Remind us, God, that we are to love you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength. And to love one another. We'll give you all the praise. We'll give you all the glory today. In Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen with me this morning? Amen. Amen. Amen.